And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, June 12th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, years of negotiating, and now a VA nurses union finally has a new contract. Plus, NIST updates crucial guidelines for protecting sensitive information. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, Guam, the island in Micronesia, still hasn't recovered from Typhoon Mawa on May 24th. The Navy base itself and military families and retirees saw loss of utilities and damage to their homes and possessions. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr has an update on efforts to help those families. And Alex, tell us, first of all, exactly what happened there. Well, that storm sort of evolved into a Cat 4, Cat 5 typhoon as it headed towards Guam. And they weren't sure if it would make direct landfall or not. It went a little north of the island, but there were still 140-mile-hour winds, uh, rain that went sideways, and lots and lots of damage. It was over by the next morning, and Karen Phelan, who's been living on the island for the last nine years, is head of the Navy Marine Corps Relief Society, and she she told me a little bit about what it looked like the next morning. Literally eight-foot diameter trees just flattened, gas pumps flattened, uh, semi-trucks tossed, 20-foot co- containers tossed, and it was very surreal to me. I've never experienced anything like this. Wow, and probably cookies tossed, too. And how quickly was the naval base itself able to recover? The naval base did manage to recover a little faster than people living off base. They they got their power back after a few days. I mean, it's a big forward-deployed base. They needed to be operational. Although, actually, there were there was also a problem with flights coming in and out, and the military suspended people going on and off the island for, for about a week. Right, and do we know that they moved the ship's out of harbor and into the sea. Usually when there's a typhoon coming, they get the ships away from the docks and the moorings. You're absolutely right, Tom. They took the ships and they moved them away from the island so that that wouldn't happen. Karen Phelan talked a little bit about the base's recovery efforts. Everything went down, including DOD housing. And they did get power back relatively quickly, probably about eight days after the storm. But that's still a long time to live without power. They did have water, which was a good thing. And they have powered through. They've been very proactive in getting that back up and running as quickly as possible. Well, hopefully they had a lot of MREs so that they could have hot food, even if there wasn't power. Do we know whether that was the supplies were there? They did have supplies, and, and but losing groceries was one of the big problems because when you lose power and you live on a tropical island, you very quickly lose the food in your refrigerator. All right, so the Navy Marine Corps Relief Society, tell us more about it and what it's doing. They've been around for a long time, and they're sort of in place to help in exactly this kind of situation. The main thing they do is give grants and non, non-interest non loans to people when there's a crisis. So they were able to give $300 a piece to individuals and $600 to families. They, they offer that service for Navy, Marine Corps, active duty, and for retirees on the island. So that was about, by, as of yesterday, they had given out over $1.1 million, helped uh, over 2,000 active duty members and 118 retirees. Here's Karen Phelan talking about it. So the minute the social media went out about the grant, we were flooded with people. 
I have pictures of lines that people were waiting for two and three hours to come and see us so that they could get just a little bit of money to help them over having to throw away all of their food, having to stand, you know, stand in line for gas for two and three hours. Um, and that was the initial impact right after the storm. Wow. Sounds like they really were devastated out there. And this Relief Society, what else do they do besides grants? Grants is really their major thrust. But there are, on Guam, there are three permanent employees. There's Karen, Karen's assistant, and then there's a nurse. And she doesn't act as a doctor. She doesn't do prescriptions or diagnoses, but she kind of does education and support. And apparently at that time, particularly for women with young children or pregnant women, having a nurse there to just kind of talk through the hardship was, was a big help. Karen told me this story. We actually had a mom stop by our table last week and you could tell the stress on her face. You could tell that she was exhausted. And she was about, about seven months pregnant, which she told me. And I said, is, oh, is this your first? And she goes, no, it's my third. I have two at home, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and I'm seven months pregnant. And my husband is deployed. I live out mm. in town. I have no power. I have no water. And you could just see tears were just welling up in her eyes. Yeah, so this nurse on hand is really a shoulder to cry on for some people, a needed function. A shoulder to cry on, and Karen was saying, someone who can just say, we're all going through this terrible thing, and you're going to be all right, and here's some, you know, have two aspirin and call me in the morning. Sure, and what can people do to help? Because it sounds like they still need help. Karen says that they're really dependent on donations to give those grants to people, and obviously they've given out a lot over the last two weeks, and she's really hoping that people around the country will want to donate. She said if it's a $5 donation, it's still a big deal to her. You can go to the Relief Society's website, and you'll find a link to be able to send money to them and help the people on Guam. All right, and we'll put that link at federalnewsnetwork.com where we post this interview. Also a good Time to point out the Federal Employee Education and Assistance Fund, FIA, which also helps federal employees throughout the nation and sometimes overseas with short-term loans, grants that they might need for this type of disaster. And uh, it's a good time to point out that if you want to make a donation to FIA, now is the time to visit our website. Our annual Motorcycle Ride for Charity is coming up on June 23rd, and FIA is one of our big beneficiaries and our partner in this charitable event. So lots of ways to help feds in distress. That's great. And when people are in those crisis situations, they really need someone to step in and do something for them. All right. Well, we'll be there. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, NIST updates crucial guidelines for protecting sensitive information. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Because cyber threats ceaselessly change, so do protective measures agencies need to take. Cybersecurity guidelines from the National Institute of Standards and Technology never stay static either. In fact, NIST is updating its guidelines in a crucial document known as Special Publication 800-171, written to help organizations protect sensitive, unclassified information. And here with the details, NIST fellow Ron Ross. Ron, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. It's great to be with you today. I think we should call you Mr. Cybersecurity, too, because uh, you have been associated with these documents for a long time. Now, 800-171, CUI, Controlled Unclassified Information, Secure Unclassified, whatever 
there's a lot of that data. What is the uh, goal here for updating those guidelines? Well, Tom, the special publication 871 was originally crafted by NIST back in 2015, and we were responding to requirements in an executive order that came out in 2010. And over the next several years, the executive order was updated. It has to do with, as you were saying, controlled unclassified information. This is information that is described by the federal government. It has certain requirements for protection that are based on a law or regulation or a government-wide policy. So if you go to the National Archives and Records Administration website, NARA, they have a registry. There's 82 different categories of information that are under the banner of controlled unclassified information. So in this job, in this particular case, uh, we already had our control catalog in SP-853, which most of your listeners are, are well aware of, but we had to do some specific tailoring. This particular executive order focused on protecting controlled on class information from unauthorized disclosure. The confidentiality was the real focus. So we took our original baseline of controls in 853, and we tailored them. We eliminated all the controls that weren't specifically necessary to protect the confidentiality of CUI. So it's been about eight years since the document was written. The threat space has changed dramatically in those eight years, and it's just time for an update. And every time we update our control catalog in 853, we're now in revision five of that document. We have to update all of the publications that depend on the control catalog for its source information. Got it. And you have some specific things that have changed here. Increased specificity for security requirements to remove ambiguity. So that's something you would do in, I guess, any document as you read it again and find things you would have done, could you? But are there any particular parameters that are important that are changing? Any specific controls or guidelines? We've added several new requirements based on the update to 800-53 Rev 5. The requirements have gotten a little more specific because we're starting to move the language in 800-171 more toward the original language in 853, which is much more specific. When we have requirements and the protections that we're talking about now, we're sending our federal controlled unclassed information over to the private sector, non-federal organizations. So all this information has a lot of value. Things like nuclear information, defense information, design documentation for space and weapon systems, personal health information, personally identifiable information, all of this information has a lot of value. Some of it's critical and very sensitive. It needs to have the same level of protection when it goes over the fence to the non-federal systems and organizations. So we had to make the requirements as specific as we can so we can set the appropriate expectation for the contractors. What do they actually have to do to make sure that information is protected appropriately? And then if there's an assessment of those requirements or controls to make sure they've been implemented correctly, that specificity helps the assessors to do that as well. You asked about some of the additional requirements. We have a couple. One comes from our moderate baseline in 853, and that is a requirement for independent third-party assessments of the requirements that have been implemented. That's a big one. The federal government needs to have assurance that these requirements are implemented correctly, the uh, controls are operating as intended, and it's supporting the security policy, which we have an effect on the federal side, which kind of transfers out to the private sector. There's also a requirement for external service providers. So, for example, if the feds send a particular contractor controlled on class information and they, for some reason, don't have the resources to protect it and they outsource that to a third party, then there's a specific requirement that sets the exact same requirements on that third party. So even though indirectly the information is not in the contractor shop, now it's being protected by a third party, we have to make sure that that third party 
that outsourcing, if you will, that organization is also protecting the information. It kind of goes all the way down the supply chain. There's this requirement for adequate protection at every level. We're speaking with computer scientist Ron Ross. He's a fellow at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So in many ways, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but the DOD's CMMC program, even though it's kind of nascent at this point, does also have that idea of the external assessor of the measures you've taken and the supply chain aspect in there. So are they following you or are you trying to adapt to what you think CMMC will do? Well, a lot of people think that the 171 document is part of the CMMC program. In reality, as I was saying, it started, uh, our first publication was back in 2015. That was many years before the DOD CMMC program came along. And CMMC is building out and they're developing that program. As part of the DOD rollout, in some of their regulations, they've called out specific NIST publication, in this case, 800-171. So when NIST writes a publication, our standards and guidelines, our FIPS, our standards, are mandatory for all federal agencies. But our guidelines are not mandatory unless they're specifically called out in an OMB policy, like A130, that federal policy. So the 800-171, when it appears in a DOD program or regulation, for example, that really puts the force of the regulation behind that document. But the document that NIST produces by itself, uh, we're not a regulatory organization. We, we don't have those authorities. Our job is to write the technical guidelines, and then any federal agency can use those and point to those in any program that they're developing, any regulation that may come out that would need to have those kinds of requirements. That's kind of the relationship we have with the DOD uh, CMMC program. Sure. That's a good thing to point out. And getting back to this, specifically the revision of 800-171, what's the timeline here? You're still open for comments and maybe a quick rundown on what generally you're seeing in the comments that you've received. Well, this is a really important update for this publication, Revision 3 of 800-171. So the comment period goes for 60 days. It terminates on July the 14th, 2023. Our plan is to take all the comments as we always do. Uh, our publications, we really rely on our customers, both in the public and private sector, to give us that critical feedback. So the comments are trickling in now, but the majority come in toward the end of the comment period. Once we get all that uh, information in, we're going to look at every comment. We're going to make the appropriate changes. And we're going to have a final public draft out sometime in the fall of 2023. I would say September timeframe in that area. Once that happens, then we will get the final set of comments. And then we hope to publish the final publication very early in 2023. I'm thinking it'll be the first quarter of the calendar year 2023, hopefully in the January timeframe. We're really pressing this publication. We want to make sure we get it out as quickly as possible because there are sophisticated threats out there. The kind of information that we're protecting in the CUI categories of information, intellectual property, it's tied to technology, innovation, military systems, space systems. It's some of the most sensitive information that we have as a country. If that information is compromised, it directly affects our national security and our economic security interests. So this is really a high priority publication. It has a huge footprint out there because of the defense industrial base and all the federal agencies that depend on the requirements for their contractors. So it's just a top priority for us, and we're really moving uh, as quickly as we can. It sounds as if some of the information that is controlled and unclassified approaches national security level types of information. It seems to touch on, you know, maybe a little overlap there. Yeah, it's hard to say. Uh, the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, did a great job from that executive order. They redid the entire 
categorization of information types across the federal government. So basically, our federal information falls into three buckets. It's either classified national security information, that's by statute. It's controlled unclassified information, that's bucket number two, and then there's everything else. So some of the categories, if you go on the website, the NARA registry, uh, it's very accessible. You can see that the nuclear security information, personal health information, some of these things are the design documentation for weapon systems and space systems, that's pretty critical information. It may not be classified yet, but it could be new technology going through that technology uh, process that kind of is moving it from the left to the right, and eventually it may become classified, but it's not classified yet. However, to an adversary, they don't care where the information is. If it's valuable, it could be a big five defense contractor, it could be a small mom and pop two-person organization. They are going to try to find the information and compromise it, get it, because that research and development is incredibly expensive. And if they don't have to do that same R&D, they can take that R&D that's already been done by us. We innovate better than anybody, and they can use that to develop their own systems. And that's a huge impact to national security and, and even our economic security, for that matter. Computer scientist Ron Ross is a fellow at the National Institute of Standards and Technologies. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to 800-171 so you can get your comments in by July 14th. It's all at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, regular business, like your agency's budget, is coming back to life in Congress. But first, years of negotiating, and now a VA nurses union has a new contract. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The National Nurses Organizing Committee and National Nurses United, all at Veterans Affairs, have signed a three-year contract. It covers more than 14,000 RNs at 23 VA hospitals. Negotiations spanned nearly a decade and two administrations. For details, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke to Organizing Committee Chair Irma Westmoreland. This contract was um, began bargaining this contract in 2015. The notice that we wanted to do it, um, we actually completed the bargaining in 27. We went to bargaining in um, late 2016. We finished in 2017. We did all the ratifications, got it ready to go to the secretary. And in 2018, the then secretary of the VA, Robert Wilkie, denied 375 provisions of the contract even as illegal provisions, even though 275 of them had been in the contract since 2003. And so we did a lot of court battles back and forth, back and forth. And then bottom line is when President Biden came in, he said, let's go back to the table. Let's see if we can get some of this stuff worked out with the VA, with all of the national unions and their contracts that were hung up. And so we have been going back and forth with the VA, just trying to identify and resolve any issues that we could. And so we finally finished everything, and uh, we signed the contract uh, in Durham last week. And what has been going on since then, uh, before the agreement was signed? Uh, well, was we the... haven't stopped working. Mm-hmm. We haven't stopped working. We just um, didn't have our contract went over a year from year from year from 2012. So this is 2023, and we have been working with a contract that was from 2012 until this one was signed. And although this one was signed in 2023, it was actually negotiated in 2017. And so the contract that we have now, although it's got some good new updates for us, 
it uh, is from 2017. And um, so we're going to have to look forward to three years from now renegotiating a contract that covers all the changes, like all the things that happened through COVID and all the things that came to light of all the things that people might need. But uh, there's a, uh, a, we have about 52 articles in our contract. They cover all the things from like, you know, how do we do, how often do we do our schedules? How many weeks of the schedule need to be put out? Like we have a, a contract that requires eight weeks of our contract to be out at a time, goes down to four weeks back to eight um, so that nurses know, you know, what their schedule is over time. You know, you can't just put out a week of schedule at a time and we never know when we're going to work. Right. And nurses get, uh, registered nurses in the VA get five weeks of annual leave a year, 26 days, which is five weeks plus one day. And so we have a right to plan to use that leave, right? But um, when you have 60 nurses that work in the ICU, uh, everybody can't be off at the same time, right? Everybody can't take the same week. So we've got to have processes in place. One of the really exciting things we like about our contract is we have a thing called peer negotiation, which means that if we get together and decide how, you know, if management says, you know, five nurses can be off a week, then um, the nurses can get together and decide, I want this week, you want that week, as long as they don't go over five nurses. And they make the decision on what their leave is. And then management says, yep, that's right. And then they approve it. So that nurses have a lot of input into their schedule. We are allowed to do peer negotiation. Now, if we can't work it out, then management has to make the decision. And we have processes in place for mandatory overtime or voluntary and involuntary overtime. I see. So before this agreement had been signed, was that one of the issues that because you were going year to year, was it all on management and they were just scheduling four weeks at a time? And, um, you know, a lot oh, of nurses... no, we had we had processes in place, but okay. this does some clarifications of those and makes it a little more clear. Um, so let me just go through a couple of things that are are new um, for this contract. Please um, do. <laughs> well, uh, so some of the things that are new is that we um are still, even though there is no executive order for uh, what we call in the federal government, we have used to have a partnership and forums and those kind of things back from when we had Barack Obama as the president. Um, and so our new contract still allows for now, and in the old contract, it, once the executive order expired or was deleted, then there was nothing that allowed us to continue with our labor forums. And so this contract does allow the the facilities and the union to decide to continue their labor forum if they want to. And during the Trump era, of course, he deleted all of that, but this contract allows it so that even if we have a new contract, a new president that comes in and says, no, you can't do it, it would violate our contract language where there are union, um, you know, local local units and local facilities that have good relationships and that that want to continue those relationships in building uh, things where they uh, can deal with items without having to go to bargaining through uh, their uh, local forums, then they can do that if they want to. The other thing is it still does allow a thing called pre-decisional embalmment, which means that when management decides that they're going to want to do a change in the co uh, change coming up, then they would tell us and then we would have the ability to provide input into that. Again, that was done away with with Pre President Trump, but we got that back back in this contract, which we did not have because our old contract, once the once the executive order ended, it, that was the end of it. So we, we do get that opportunity. We did have clarifications on things. Like I told you a clarification on our annual leave and that um, our old contract um, had some um, language in it that needed to be clarified that if I wanted to just take a day off, I didn't have to take a week at a time. 
I could just request one single day off or just, uh, you know, if I wanted a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I could do that as a request for my leave instead of taking a whole week at a time. So just doing a lot of clarifications um, for things like that. We did a clarification in our language that you get two weeks off in a four week period. Our other contract had some language that did not, that was supposed to be written that way. But when we looked at it back, we came back, it wasn't clear. So now RNs get two weekends off in a four week period if they have to work weekends. So those are, are really good language. There is, uh, I'm going over my list of what I want to tell people about contracts. I'm not meeting it, uh, forgetting anything. We have the ability to wear um, buttons and pins and and um, like if the union wants to wear a pin that says um, uh, RNs demand safe staffing in the old contract, we had to ask management's permission first. Now we don't have to do that. We can do that. We will make sure that nurses are involved in developing competencies and policies as it relates to them and the work that they do. Um, things like um, safety manuals, right? You know, the emergency, temporary emergency standard for when COVID came out, one of the things that it, it provided was that we would get copies of all emergency preparedness plans, right? That's gone right now. And of course, we still, we're wanting it to become a permanent standard. But in our contract now, we do get that the agency will provide us with all emergency preparedness plans. So we have copies of that even when they change it, even whenever they decide, you know, when COVID was going on, they said, oh, we're in this national emergency. We don't even have to tell you what we're doing when we're doing it. You know, they just kind of ran over whenever they wanted to, but this uh, makes sure that we get those plans so that we can, if we have an issue with them, we can do that. Understood. And uh, I'm curious about the bargaining process, just because there are so many unique needs at every VA facility. You know, how are you able to put all of those together while bargaining for the rights of the nurses who work those facilities? Well, what we did in our contract is that we did we have three levels of bargaining, local level, which is at a local facility, mid-level bargaining, which the VAs are divided into visions where like the one I'm in is vision seven and we have eight facilities there. So if there's something affecting more than one unit in the vision, we would do it at a mid-level and then national bargaining. And when we did this contract, we sent out what we call, these are issues that nurses have brought to us. Is there something else you want us to bargain on? Rank these on what's important to you. What do you want us to bargain on? What we can bargain on? And so the nurses, we did these surveys to all the nurses that are in our unit. We represent um, 23 facilities facilities across the country, over 13,000 nurses. And we took those needs that they brought back on their survey. And then that's how we developed um, the things that they, they showed us what they wanted us to change. And so that's why that was, that's how we got that. Irma Westmoreland, chair of the National Nurses Organizing Committee within the National Nurses United Veterans Affairs Sector. Speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. There's much more to the interview. Hear it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, regular business, like your agency's budget, is coming back to life in Congress. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Agency budgets for 2024 and the next National Defense Authorization Act. Committees in the House will take up both of those issues this week. This as Congress recovers from its exertions over the debt ceiling. 
We get the outlook from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, just give us the outlines of what the House will be doing here on some stuff that the deadline for which is really looming. Absolutely. You mentioned the two big things, the National Defense Authorization Act and the appropriations bills, both of which were supposed to start a couple of weeks ago, but they hit the pause button because of the debt limit negotiations that you referenced. So those processes are getting up and running again, in part because there's more clarity with that debt limit deal in place. But the September 30th deadline, especially on spending, will continue to loom over the House and the Senate as they decide what to do with those bills. And then other things that have deadlines, like the Farm Bill and the FAA Bill, where where there hasn't been the sort of progress you might think they need to get those things done by September 30th. So, you know, we, we were so focused on the debt limit, but now everything has shifted towards these September 30th deadlines that are really going to take the focus on the attention of Congress. And FAA is an authorization deal? needed. That's right. But there there are some components that have to be in place because of trust fund and ticket taxes and things like that that need to be either reauthorized or at least extended. Um, we saw a bill come out on Friday from the House Authorization Committee that um, will lay the groundwork for that debate, 700 plus pages. So it's a, a pretty big piece of legislation um, that will take up a lot of time over the coming weeks. And I guess the administration has a new nominee for FAA administrator. They've been some time without a confirmed administrator. Maybe it's a a year and a half now running. That's kind of important for someone overseeing the safety of the air system. So that'll be an extra debate and activity for the Senate. Absolutely. Um, The the full-time administrator who had been nominated withdrew, and then the part-time or at least acting administrator, Billy Nolan, stepped down. So we are with another acting, and, and that is not a filled position, even as Congress weighs this really sweeping legislation about the agency. So um, tra- summer travel season often brings focus to the aviation sector, um, and I'm sure that will be the case this year as well. Yeah, especially with planes clipping each other on the ground all over the place. I mean, that's an FAA. It's not just the air that they have to keep the planes apart, but, you know, right next to each other, you know, a little shred in your car, you could keep going on vacation. A little tear in the skin of an airplane, you're not going anywhere on that plane for for months, probably. All right. What's the update on some bills that dealing with gas stoves and some rulemaking gambits that the Republicans in the House are trying to deal with. Those issues are issues, but with respect to how they are affecting the rest of the lawmaking going on, what's what's the status there? Well, this is the other byproduct of the debt ceiling deal that allowed some things to move forward, but a group of Republicans last week banded together and prevented the rest of the Republicans and the leadership from adopting a rule that would have allowed debate on four different bills last week, two of them dealing with gas stoves, one dealing with required approval of major regulations instead of this negating process that they use now. And then the fourth would have changed the Chevron deference policy where courts tend to defer to administration on their interpretation of regulations. So those were four big bills they wanted to do last week. All of them were swept aside, though, when they couldn't adopt a rule for floor debate. This goes back to the way that Kevin McCarthy negotiated the deal and how he had to obtain Democratic support, not just to pass the bill, but also in that case, to adopt the rule to even allow the House to debate that. So um, this is the Republicans working some things out. As we recall from the beginning of the year, it was a tough process for Kevin McCarthy to become Speaker. Some of the people who really didn't want him as Speaker are holding him to the fire now and demanding some changes to the way things run. So we'll see We'll see what happens this week as they try again on those bills. Um, but that is definitely a factor to, to watch this week. Can they get things back going? What's the old saying? They used to fight one another over a hot stove. Now it's literally fighting one another over a gas stove. Indeed. All right. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan. He's deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. What about the Senate? Some nominees there. We mentioned FAA, but there's still a lineup behind that. 
Yep, they're churning through nominations as they can. There's an undersecretary for the State Department this week, and then some of the, I think, Jared Bernstein to be at the head of the CEA in the White House. That's another position that requires confirmation. Charles Schumer teed up a lot of these votes before they left last week to make sure that they had a full slate to do this week. Judicial nominees will remain a focus. They'll keep going through those. The president keeps sending them over, and the Judiciary Committee will keep processing them now that they have Dianne Feinstein back in place and have the majority they need to push forward with those. So um, it's really a nomination factory there. The one interruption could come with another Congressional Review Act vote. The House is looking this week at one to overturn the ATF's rule on pistol braces. The Senate wants to do that as well. So we'll see if that's something that can get through both this week or may take some time. Obviously, that's been a big focus as well, the, the Congressional Review Acts. And the House, I think, is taking a vote this week on whether to override the president's veto of another one of those. So that's the other part of this factory that keeps moving fairly efficiently, even if it's not affecting anything in the end. Yeah, so that ATF pistol brace rule, I'm presuming the House Republicans don't want it, and the Senate Democrats where all Democrats do want it. Right. And we'll, we'll probably see it pass the House. Now, in the Senate, there's always maybe a Democrat or two or three even who might side with that. So it's not a foregone conclusion. That's the way that these CRA resolutions, as we refer to them, have gotten through, is that there has been enough Democratic support to give it the simple majority it needs in the Senate to get over the line to the president's desk. And the other hoary issue that's kind of raised its head again is where will the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, move to? And interesting, there seems to be some clamor from coming within the agency itself. Yes, WUSA 9, I think it is, got this letter that the FBI had written saying that the proximity to Quantico should be something that's taken into consideration when you locate this headquarters. Um, that would mean Virginia would win if, if that was the quantity or the quality that they were looking for. The Maryland delegation and the Maryland governor is obviously pushing hard to get the the headquarters there. Um, they talk a lot about equity and how it would be better to have it there. So this is very much still a live issue. On the congressional side, you have in the Maryland delegation two people with some something of a say, Chris Van Hollen, who leads the Financial Services Subcommittee in the Senate, and then Steny Hoyer, the former majority leader, is now the ranking member of that subcommittee in the House. So they're both going to have a big say in the bill that funds the GSA. And um, obviously, the GSA will make the final decision here, taking the FBI's interest into account. So this is very much a live issue, something Steny Hoyer, I think, really wanted that job he took so that he would have a, a say and some influence over that decision. And I guess beyond that, we'll see if they really fund a headquarters in a way that it can be built with some degree of alacrity, as we saw with the Homeland Security headquarters. It was a 15-year effort. Absolutely. They'll need money and they'll need speed and um, they'll want to get out of the current building, which is part of the reason motivating this is that I don't think they want to stay in the Hoover building uh, much longer if they can avoid it. But it's still too soon to start putting cigarettes out on the carpet because you got to live with the place for a little bit while longer, probably 10 years, I'm guessing. Those processes do take a long time. So, yeah. All right. And Supreme Court ethics, that's coming up in the Senate. We don't cover the court system a lot, but this has all to do with Clarence Thomas and the allegations around him. That's right. There's still a push in the Senate among Democrats to have some sort of code of ethics on the Supreme Court. Um, if they there are some rules and ethics guidelines that Supreme Court justices do abide by, obviously, but um, there's some interest in strengthening those or, or having a new layer on top of that. So there's a bill that there will be a hearing led by Sheldon Whitehouse and the Senate Judiciary Committee this week, um, continuing the drumbeat on that issue, um, which hasn't gone away and I, I don't think will because there's a lot of interest. And this is obviously a big month for the Supreme Court, a lot of big rulings coming. So it's a 
find time for them, I think, to keep that in the spotlight. And that's probably why they'll take that opportunity this week. Yeah. And some of their rulings have been surprises, which means this court is not as easy to pin down as people might have thought. Yeah, the Alabama redistricting case last week is a big deal and could mean a lot for the 2024 election, as we wrote about last week, that it shifted not just in Alabama, but in other states as well. So Democrats actually were buoyed a little bit by the way that case came down, whereas they were dreading it going in, to be quite honest. Yeah. And just another question about the Senate. What have you noticed up there? I mean, they have two senators who are at marginal levels of being able to perform their duties. John Fetterman and Dianne Feinstein, God bless her, she didn't look so good when she got back to the Senate. What do we know about them and their ability to be on top of the issues? And can they vote? I mean, I guess they can vote because somebody can raise their hand. Right. That's that's the literally the bare minimum. Can you make it to the chamber to raise your hand and vote? Um, and both of them have been doing that since their return. Diane Feinstein did say she'd be on a lighter schedule as she continues to recover from the shingles effects. Fetterman has been doing press conferences and he's even led a subcommittee hearing since he returned from his inpatient treatment for depression. So they're both back in some ways. And then there's other senators who are gone as well. We saw Patty Murray was away for a couple of days last week dealing with a health issue. So, you know, it's um, there's always somebody sick in the office, I guess. It's just that with a 50-50 or 51-49 setup right now, any departure can really wreck with uh, the system, especially if Republicans can get Democrats to come on their side and really upend a vote. So, you know, it, it does matter who shows up and who's able to be casting a vote any day. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. An independent agency created to fast-track the sale of excess federal properties is falling behind on its goals. Congress created the Public Buildings Reform Board back in 2016 to recommend federal properties for expedited sale and disposal. Some of the board-recommended properties have sold in recent years, but the board is also running into many of the bureaucratic hurdles it was meant to bypass. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. And just review the mission of this reform board, Jory, because GSA already has ostensibly within its purview the ability to sell buildings. They do, and GSA throughout this entire process is the entity that's still selling those buildings. The Public Buildings Reform Board simply comes up with recommendations, and from there it's up to GSA and the Office of Management and Budget to actually pull the trigger on those sales. But the whole concept dates back to 2016 with the Federal Assets Sale and Transfer Act, or FASTA. The idea is that this legislation stood up the board and would give them the power to really cut through the bureaucratic red tape of selling facilities. It can be a years-long process to do that, even for buildings that by all accounts are underutilized or completely vacant. To give you a sense of the scope here, there's some data we have from the Federal Real Property Profile, and this is a little dated from fiscal 2021, but that showed that there are nearly 900 federal buildings that are underutilized and nearly eight thousand that are completely unused. And these are federally owned properties, never mind the least stuff, correct? This is the stuff that the federal government owns outright. Wow. And so the board has what to show then for the six years it's been in business? Well, less than what they bargained for. GSA has sold 10 of the properties that the board has recommended at this point. The proceeds are a little less than $200 million, and that's well below the board's target of getting 500 to $700 million from those properties. 
We heard recently from former Congressman Nick Rahal. He is a member of the board. He told the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee that there are two remaining properties from this high value asset list of properties, but it's taken GSA years to get those properties ready. And at this point, they might have missed their window for getting the top dollar for those properties. The length of time to sell these properties will likely cost the government hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, when considering the cost savings over the next 30 years. Well, yes, because the buildings are needing to be maintained while they're there. And as you say, they've missed the peak market. I mean, commercial real estate is not doing so well now, thanks to the pandemic. No, it's certainly not. And you make an interesting point here, Tom, that a lot of these properties, just because they are not being used, doesn't mean that they are in pristine condition. The GSA has to pour considerable amount of resources into these buildings for there even to be bidders who are interested in it in the first place. And the inventory is mixed, isn't it? I mean, people think of federal building, they think of big, beautiful limestone or sandstone or granite structures in the classical architecture. A lot of these are suburban. A lot of them are warehouses. A lot of them are garages that could have collapsing roofs. I mean, a lot of it's kind of crappy, fair to say. Yeah, it's exactly as you describe it. You know, some of it's parking lots. Some of it is stuff that is not even structures, but just land. Yeah, okay. And so what has slowed down the board so much? They're supposed to make recommendations, I guess, presumably to cut through the politics such that they can state there's an objective look at this property and it should be sold. And so a politician can't say, oh, no, 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 that's in my territory. That's in my district. You got to keep that gem. Is that what's going on? It is. And, you know, the first sign of trouble was a couple of years ago when the board recommended the sale of a National Archives and Records Administration facility in Seattle. They were going to move the records somewhere else in the country, in California, and that ran into legal trouble. Uh, Native American tribes sued the government, saying that they would make those records inaccessible to them. And the Office of Management and Budget listened to them. They blocked the sale of that property, saying that it was against the Biden administration's goals of working with tribal governments. And from there, the board came up with this subsequent round of recommendations in December of 2021. OMB blocked those entirely, said that the entire list of things, they wanted them to go back to the drawing board. That led to two members of the board resigning, and the board did not have a quorum for just about all of calendar year 2022. And to top it all off, the board is not having access to the most recent update of the federal real property profile. Again, this data that we're looking at is two years old, and agencies have not been forthcoming with data saying, oh, we would love to get rid of X, Y, or Z. Right. So they were hoping to get $2.5 billion from those recommendations that OMB rejected outright? Right. That was supposed to be $2.5 billion in proceeds that, as a result of the list being blocked, they didn't get any of that money. Just sitting there rotting away with pigeons running around on the roof. By the way, the profile that you refer to, that's like an inventory of federal properties? Yeah, it's an online database of properties that are available to the public to take a look at here. And, you know, this at this point is, again, something that the board was supposed to overcome, was supposed to cut through. We heard from David Maroney, who is over at the Government Accountability Office. He's their acting director of fiscal infrastructure. He said that FASTA and this board, you know, they were really trying to undergo a new way of doing things, but they've encountered some significant setbacks here with these first two rounds of recommendations. FASTA is effectively a six-year experiment to try and mitigate some of these challenges by testing out new concepts and different ways of disposing of unneeded real property. 
This experiment has not gone wholly as planned. Yeah, it sounds like it's barely gone at all. So what's next for this board with people resigning and having old inventories to look at to even decide from? Well, the good news is that they do have a quorum that regained in November of 2022. So they have people around to put their heads together and they are working on their final round of recommendations for December 2024. But after that, the board is set to sunset in May of 2025. So they are really up against the clock here to come up with what they can. And you know they've had some substantial headwinds in terms of meeting these goals here. So it remains to be clear whether it will deliver on those billions of dollars of savings that they promised in the first place. And is there anything else going on? Any other efforts by GSA or anybody else to try to shrink this federal real estate footprint, which you say has thousands of buildings, hundreds that aren't needed? Well, GSA, interestingly enough, is acting now on what is now a multi-administration goal of freezing and then shrinking the federal real property portfolio here. We heard from Nina Albert, the commissioner of GSA's public building service. Over the past five years, GSA has been able to reduce federally leased office space by about 13 million square feet. That's led to a $6.5 billion cost savings. Albert also said that GSA has been able to shrink the portfolio of federal federally owned office space by another 13 million square feet over that same period of time. Now, of course, the interesting wrinkle here is that the Biden administration, by and large, is trying to bring federal employees back to the office more since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that puts things up in the air in terms of what really is underutilized these days. Albert says that this is something that they're going to be looking at for the years to come. We're going to continue over the next year, I would say, to understand where that pendulum is finally going to rest. I will say, as a asset manager and portfolio manager, I don't need to wait completely for a final answer, but agencies, before they're willing to give up space, will want to have a better understanding of how they plan to operate for the next term. I guess if they send people back to terrible buildings, maybe the problem will solve itself. I think, who knows? I think some of the vacancies from pandemic are not in the buildings that they want to dispose of. The teleworking is not happening where these buildings should be disposed of. All right. So it's just a matter of uh, waiting and see if that board can do anything else in the next year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one interesting thing here is that the board does get modest appropriations every year from Congress, but part of their operating budget comes from sale of these buildings. And so with things jammed up, they don't have a ton of money to work with. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen. 